Bioinsights Podcast. I'm Roisin McGuigan, an editor with Bioinsights, and in this episode, I'll be exploring key challenges and solutions for successful IPSC-based allogeneic cell therapy development. Joining me today is Elena Matza, VP of Cell Technology at Solistic. Elena has expertise and experience in a broad array of functions essential to successful allogeneic cell therapy manufacturing including IPSC differentiation, genetic manipulation, phenotypic assay development, and efficacy and safety assessment of therapeutic modalities. Joining her today is Andy Holt, Chief Commercial Officer at Solistic. Andy brings more than 15 years of experience in cell and gene therapy to his role, and he leverages his experience in scaling up cell and gene therapy platforms to help clients reach their goals. So thank you both for joining me today, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion. So we'll start off with a bit of a scene setter. So if you could both tell me just a little bit about your backgrounds and the current work you do. And Elena, if you would like to kick us off here. Sure, thank you. Um, So my story starts with a PhD in uh, stem cell biology back in 2006, when um, induced peripotent stem cells were first discovered. So my PhD focused on investigating the mechanisms of IPC programming, uh, which was really exciting at the time. I then uh, continued with two postdoctoral fellowships, one at the University of Nottingham and another at Stanford University in California. So it was uh, really nice spending some time in Silicon Valley um, studying IPSC-based disease modeling. After this, um, I transitioned to industry for a couple of years in uh, South San Francisco and then as director of uh, drug discovery services at Encordia. Um, And so this journey uh, was a very interesting one, very exciting. And um, over 15 years, uh, roughly, I gained uh, a lot of experience in IPC programming, genome editing, assay development, and importantly, differentiation of IPCs to different lineages, such as um, heart cells, neurons, and immune cells. And so this has been uh, preparing me for the current position at Cellistic, where I lead strategic and scientific projects as uh, vice president of cell technologies. Great. Thank you, Elena. And Andy, coming to you. Thanks so much. And uh, it's exciting to be here today. Um, I have a a bit of a a different journey and, and certainly less uh, robust experience in, uh, in in the deep science that Elena brings to the table, but um, that's why it's nice to be able to work with people like her and, and uh, why I have the opportunity to work at companies like, like Incardia. Um, my background is, has been on the commercial side of, of biotechnology for about the last 15 years. Um, I was a really bad molecular biologist as a, as, as a little tiny bit of scientific training, especially uh, in a place like Incardia, that's a teeny tiny bit of, of training jumped over into into kind of uh, cell culture formulation and, and media formulation work for a few years and then um, started working in services, which is um, something I really enjoy. Um, worked for a number of, of contract research and contract testing organizations and then um, was lucky enough just I, I can't claim any anything other than luck that was involved in getting to participate in some of the earlier uh, projects in gene and cell therapy coming out of academia in the in the southeast United States. Uh, which is which is where I'm based. 
Um, from there, I, I just kind of um, was was happy enough to be able to get exposed to, to how these things are made and, and trying to figure out how to bring these things into the clinic as novel therapeutics and really novel modalities. Um, got associated with uh, a couple of the larger CDMOs uh, doing this work um, and then uh, most recently spent the last five years before coming to Incardia with a small gene therapy developer um, called AskBio that was uh, um, recently acquired by, uh, by Bayer. And, and as a part of that acquisition, um, we got to bring a lot of uh, neat therapies forward and also spin out a couple of manufacturing companies. So um, when I came to Incardia, it was really um, an incredible opportunity to be associated with a technology that's coming into kind of into its prime, I think, here in the next few years. and, and um, yeah, really excited for the chance to to be a part of this kind of journey that so many people like Elena and others have have worked so long uh, to bring forward. Fantastic. Thank you. And now we'll get a little bit more um, into our topic today. So firstly, what role do you predict induced pluripotent stem cells, iPSCs, will play in the future of cell therapy? And Andy, we'll come to you here first. Sure. I, I mean, I think we're, we're at a place that's really fascinating for, for cell therapy right now. And, and I think there's a, a common kind of uh, vocabulary overlap when we say cell therapy, we kind of mean immuno-oncology, but I think there's, there's applications outside of that that iPSCs are especially powerful for. But um, it's an interesting time, right, where we have um, clear indications that, that the way these autologous cell therapies work uh, is is compelling and, and really revolutionary, but there are severe limitations driven by the modality, driven by autologous cell therapy as as the choice for bringing these therapies forward, um, both in terms of access and in terms of of manufacturing, that limit their reaching their full potential. And and so obviously with a great bit of bias because uh, I'm I'm working for a company that's been fully devoted to iPSC for a number of years, and and I believe in that strongly. Um, I think. I think induced pluripotent stem cells are the way forward to help these sort of novel immuno-oncology drugs reach their full potential, you know, reach the right number of people, uh, reach uh, the right cost basis for, for, for everyone to have access. And so my kind of thought, my armchair quarterbacking here is, is that IPSC will be the modality of choice to help allogeneic cell therapies um, really come to the fore. Uh, and, and dominate the, the space around immuno-oncology and also, you know, get to some really interesting corners of the world where, where cell therapy uh, can also reach, whether that's uh, tissue or organ regeneration, those sort of really um, next generation applications of, of what you can do with a well-characterized, predictable source of, of human pluripotent cells. Fantastic. Thank you. And Elena, would you agree with those predictions? So I completely agree with Andy, and this is a great question, particularly for, for someone like me that has been in the IPC field uh, for over 15 years. To talk about um, the future of IPCs in cell therapy is great because this is something that we couldn't have imagined um, would be a reality uh, that long ago. And so we've gone uh, through using IPCs in drug safety studies, in disease modeling and understanding disease mechanisms and using them in drug discovery to actually using them as a therapeutic. And so um, I think this is now a, a very exciting reality. And I think uh, immunotherapy and allogeneic IPC-based cell therapy 
um, will uh, quickly become uh, dominant uh, because of the benefits uh, that it offers. And then for me, the future is um, in the application of IPSCs in the, let's say, second branch of uh, cell therapy, which is regenerative medicine, and to be able to use um, these cells to create multi-cell type artificial tissues for transplantation is uh, where I see the future going. And following on from that, could you expand a bit more on what you see as the key benefits of autologous versus allogeneic cell therapies? And Ellen, if we could stay with you here. Yes, I think that's a great follow-up question. And so we've, um, I think one of the your benefits is the time that it takes to create uh, a, a therapy for a patient. So in the case of autologous uh, cell therapies, it takes at least six months to, um, to, to generate a treatment for a specific patient. So you would have to isolate their cells in the hospital, uh, bring them to the lab, expand them, uh, modify them, and then put them back in the patient. And this process is really lengthy. Um, and so for patients that are suffering with severe diseases, this may even be too long. And so offering the option of analogenic cell therapy that is ready to use off the shelf um, at any time is a real benefit. The other benefit is related to cost because um, to create autologous cell therapies for every patient is um, very expensive. It could cost over uh, half a million or a million um, dollars for each patient and many families really could, can't afford these therapies. So uh, having one production that can benefit multiple patients can reduce the cost and therefore bring the therapies um, to more patients that need it. And I think uh, beyond um, the benefits to, to um, the patients, there's also benefits in terms of the manufacturing processes where if you're uh, generating analogenic product, that's the same one product for multiple patients, the process becomes more standardized, more predictable, has a higher success rate, um, which also contributes to the, to the reduced cost. Uh, and, and lastly, I will mention another kind of um, a benefit of uh, allogeneic therapies where, for example, in autologous therapies, if you're interested in using a patient's own cells for their own treatment and this patient may be carrying a mutation, the cells that you generate and want to transplant back into the patient for therapy uh, will carry the same mutation, which may um, uh, limit the function of the transplanted cells. Whereas with allogeneic cell therapies, you can choose the donor to have a healthy, um, uh, to have healthy characteristics and therefore have a better therapeutic outcome. So Andy, uh, what for you uh, would be the key benefits? I think there's, um, it's a really fascinating point in time we're at right now, where we have a, a suite of, of novel therapeutics with, with truly transformative results, right, that are on the back of, of a cell therapy modality, you know, autologous cell therapy that, you know, a, a few years ago, there are any number of these sort of liquid tumor cancers that, that were incredibly challenging to treat in a meaningful way. And, and all of a sudden, there are options that deliver, you know, 90 plus percent complete response rates. Um, you know, they, they really kind of rocketed through to approval uh, because of that, because it could save lives. And 
you know, decades of, of hard research to understand the human immune, immune system in, in uh, a deeper way and, and leverage some really interesting uh, gene modification techniques to reach a, a therapeutic that, that um, yeah, it's just, it's just incredible. Um, I think where allogeneic can offer huge advantages is, is to allow a deeper understanding and a, and a more complete answer to a lot of people than, than autologous can can offer. Um, that time sensitivity that that Elena alluded to, um, you know, these patients are are dying, right? That's just the reality. Um, being able to administer a, a meaningful therapeutic sooner, um, being able to um, allow them to continue on standard of care while that therapeutic is prepared, and, and also being given the luxury of time to fully characterize and fully release these large batches of cells that don't have the variability that autologous therapeutics do. Um, helps de-risk um, what is a, a really exciting and dynamic therapy even further. So from the patient perspective, I think it's it's really pretty exciting. Um, and, you know, of course, from the manufacturing perspective, <clears throat> as somebody who's spent a lot of time thinking about manufacturing strategy and, and those sort of things, um, without getting into really um, kind of eye-wateringly boring details about how these things are made, um, we can move the manufacture of these cell therapies into a much more traditional biomanufacturing workflow. And, and that allows for uh, many more doses and, and a much cheaper kind of footprint and operational kind of envelope to work within. Um, it also eases up the regulatory burden a little bit because we have plenty of time and, and plenty of resource to really um, answer any, any questions the regulators may pose to us about this stuff. So from a scientific perspective, Elena's definitely covered more things than I ever could. From just the practical perspective, if I was a, if I was a patient uh, or, or if I'm running a manufacturing facility, there's also some really exciting upsides um, to, to being able to move to allogeneic. Now that we've outlined the benefits, let's turn instead to the obstacles. So what do you see as the biggest obstacles to successful iPSC-based allogeneic cell therapy development and how can they be addressed? Nothing comes without the uh, downsides, does it? So I think for allogeneics, IPSC-based cell therapies, the, the main obstacle, and I think what the regulatory authorities are most concerned about is safety. And uh, for IPSC-based products, the safety concern is their karyotype stability, primarily. Uh, so the cells have um, sensitivity to gaining karyotype abnormalities that give them an advantage for growth in cell culture since uh, this is an artificial environment. And um, so reprogramming and genome editing uh, are, let's say, processes that the cells are sensitive to. And if they're stressed during these processes, they give themselves this survival advantage by gaining karyotype abnormalities. However, um, this can be overcome by thorough genotypic screening and um, there are very good technologies to achieve this, not just the traditional gene banding, but also SNP karyotype analysis and a thorough um, characterization of master cell banks and final products can help overcome this obstacle quite easily. And then the second concern is uh, really the potential for carcinogenicity, which means that since these cells have the ability to differentiate into any cell type in the body, they could also differentiate randomly if they're not in the right environment, uh, therefore leading to tumors. 
again, this is a small risk in our view, and um, it, it would really need a large population of residual stem cells in the end product to uh, have an increased risk for carcinogenicity. So again, assessment and selection against the non-desired cells in the final product can easily help overcome this obstacle as well. And then um, there is the obstacle of uh, histocompatibility. So because you're using cells, transplanting cells into a patient that are not their own cells, you need to make sure that the, um, that the HLA molecules are compatible. Otherwise, the, this can lead to either the host cells killing the implanted cells before they've had a chance to um, have a therapeutic effect. Um, and the other way around, um, the uh, grafted cells can kill unwanted host cells. So you, you want to avoid these things. And typically with um, technologies such as genome editing or creating HLA homozygous donor bands, this can also be overcome. And perhaps another um, obstacle that I will mention is the manufacturability. And this is something that we focus on a lot as well, um, considering our expertise. So what I mean by this is that because the IPC-based allogeneic cell therapies are fairly new, there is a lack of um, equipment, media, matrices in order to achieve GMP-compliant scaled manufacturing. And so this is something that we work on um, uh, a lot continuously and uh, it's also important to start this uh, type of thinking early communicate with developers of devices and media to establish suitable processes and um, together as a community uh, help overcome these manufacturability obstacles so that we can bring good treatments to the patients that need them great thank you and andy would you like to add your perspective here no, I think um, I didn't have too much to to add on top of Elena's comments there. That was a that was that was as good of an analysis as you could hear of, of the challenges. You know, I think the from from perhaps a bit more of a layperson's perspective, I think a big challenge here is just how new all of these issues are. Right? Um, this is, you know, in terms of allogeneic uh, cell therapy clinical trials, we're still in very very early days. Um, so both developers and the regulators are kind of having to figure this out together about what is important, um, what are the key risks, what, what can be, you know, characterized, and, and frankly, what is, is kind of challenging to really know. And so that's where I'm, I'm grateful that we're in a situation where there has been, uh, you know, really a flood of novel therapeutics coming forward over the last 10, 15 years, so that there is a framework to work with the regulators in a, in a really productive way um, on, on how to accomplish overcoming these challenges, right? And how to, to really bring these things forward into patients. I think um, one of the lessons I think we've all learned is, is that all of the research and kind of development stuff in the world doesn't, uh, doesn't have as much impact as really reaching the clinic and reaching patients with these and understanding um, you know, these, these complex and, and novel therapeutics, these living therapeutics in, in a human is, is the best way to really know what's going on, but that, um, that comes with some risk and, and this, this kind of current state we're in is, is really conducive to bringing these forward, um, in, in a way that, like I said, maybe 15 years ago, there were a lot more challenges 
to, to both educate the regulators as well as um, collaborate with them on, on bringing these things forward and, and helping people. Okay, so we touched on manufacturing a little bit earlier, um, but coming back to that, what are the most important considerations for developing a successful cell therapy manufacturing process? Um, and this is including considerations for either manufacturing in-house or with a partner. Um, Elena, coming to you first. Thank you. I think the most important consideration is to know what the end goal is, what the target product is. So in our language, that means defining the QTPP, the quality target product profile. So if you understand exactly the qualities, the characteristics, the properties, the yield, uh, all the all the um, qualities that you want to achieve from the beginning, that's the first step to having a successful manufacturing process. And then the another consideration is to then build a process that's robust and reproducible. So that means having a process that supports the same outcome for every batch of the product that is manufactured. And uh, so it's, it's not enough to do it once or twice. You need good reproducibility. You need to understand how a small change in one of the parameters of the process affects the end product. And so having this complete understanding of the manufacturing process is, is very important. And um, I think the last uh, perhaps consideration I will outline is traceability. And so this is what will help you get through audits, help you get through IND filing. And this can be achieved nowadays um, with um, digitalization of the processes and uh, to achieve the traceability level that's needed for clinical use of the product. Thank you. And Andy, do you have any considerations you'd like to add? Yeah, you know, I think it's, um, I, I love having um, colleagues like Elena who can, can speak to the level of detail about the product itself um, and, and the science involved in getting these things made. <clears throat> um, when I think about how to, how to bring these things forward, um, I've, I focus, I guess, on, on a little bit more of the corporate strategy and practical elements of, you know, how do you want to deploy your your capital right <laughs> early on and and to to either design and build a facility on your own or partner with a contract manufacturer um, those are really key decisions and it comes down to a lot of the same questions Elena was asking just about a, a different topic maybe about you know what really matters um, you know do you do you view you know having a manufacturing asset and building out that team as as really important do you have a a, a manufacturing process that as as Elena alluded to already built and ready and robust you know, are you kind of ready for prime time, quote unquote, with with um, with what you have and, and you want to build infrastructure around that? Or, or do you need to partner because you have the immuno oncology and cell biology expertise, but lack the um, quality and regulatory manufacturing expertise, the scale up expertise that you need to really reach the, your clinical trial? And, and so some of those fundamental questions, I think, if, if you're a therapeutic developer, have to be asked um, just as seriously and at the same time, <clears throat> at the same time, pardon me, as you're um, considering your, your product profile uh, or else you're going to be, um, you know, 
you're going to be excited to start and have nowhere to go, so to speak. Um, and, and then that leads to a whole other set of cascading questions about how you assess a partner, how you how you manage your budget, all of the sort of those sort of factors, um, just to be able to reach your end goal on time. So a lot to think about there. Um, and we've reached our final question. Um, so if you could both share with me your key advice for making the change from autologous to allogeneic cell therapy development, a practical reality. Uh, Andy, it will come to you first here. Yeah, I think you need to be um, thinking about the, the end. This is a lot like my last, uh, my last topic a little bit, or the last question you asked, um, that you need to be considering what the end goal is um, from, from really the start. You know, allogeneic cell therapy comes with some, some novel adventures, right? You, if, if you're developing an allogeneic cell therapy right now, you, you are an early adopter still. And so those, um, those long-term benefits of, of a better cost basis for your therapeutic, uh, hopefully easier broad reach to a number of patients, um, better predictability and scalability come with some short-term uh, obstacles that, that Elena alluded to already that, that we're all kind of figuring out together. So I think if, if you're thinking about that sort of switch right now, um, obviously, again, we're pretty biased and we'd be pretty excited about anybody thinking about that switch because we think that's the way the world uh, is going, should go, will go, whatever whatever set of, of, of verbs you want to use, we're, we're in on it. Um, but I think the key piece is, is knowing that um, you're going to get to break some new ground and, and whoever you're working with is going to break some new ground with you for uh, a medium and long-term scenario that is just really compelling and exciting. So I think, um, you know, without being too glib, it would be to kind of uh, think about uh, a little bit more of an adventure in, in the next six to 12 to 18 months, as opposed to an autologous development process, but a really exciting set of benefits waiting for, for, for anybody developing an allogeneic and, and really for all of us, uh, if, if you're thinking about moving that direction, which you definitely should, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. So exciting times. And Elena, what key advice would you add? Well, we've talked about the, the challenges of the process. And my key advice based on this would be to really put the best team together that can help expedite the product development process and catch any common pitfalls. And this could mean either building the team in-house or outsourcing it to an ex uh, experienced partner. Either way, um, you want the best team to come together for the best outcome. And then I would also say, just retain a focus on, on what the purpose of this is, which is to bring the best treatment to the, to the, to the most patients that need it. Um, and that to do this in an affordable way, this could mean allogeneic cell therapy. Well, thank you, Elena, and thank you, Andy, for such a great discussion. This episode was brought to you in partnership with Solistic. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to subscribe to the BioInsights podcast. Thank you.